Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to the Adventures in Advising podcast. We're at episode 65. Today's guests are Dr. Debbie Mercer from Kansas State University and Mark Nelson from Oklahoma State University. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on social media at Advising Podcast. Let's get to episode 65. Welcome back. It's the middle of August. This new academic year is starting soon for many of us. Let's see what this new school year brings. I know for this new episode, our first interview is with Dean Debbie Mercer from K-State. Here we go. All right, let's welcome to the podcast, Dr. Debbie Mercer. Dr. Mercer has served in the Dean's position for the College of Education at Kansas State University since June 2012. Beginning her career as a preschool teacher, she has also taught in Kansas rural public elementary classrooms and a school library media center. Her higher education experience includes university teaching and administration. Specific areas of interest and expertise include teacher recruitment, preparation and retention, children's literature, and the use of technology. Providing leadership in the area of assessment and accreditation, she has led the development and implementation of assessment systems to document effective candidate preparation for teachers and school personnel. Dr. Mercer holds a PhD in curriculum and instruction with an emphasis in reading and English as a second language, MS in curriculum and instruction with emphasis in reading and language arts, as well as a bachelor's degree in elementary education and family and child development, all from Kansas State University. Dr. Mercer, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here today, and I'm I'm excited to visit for a while. Yes, and we're excited that you're here too. Excited to do this interview and have our listeners get to take a you know get to know you a lot better. And I have to say many thanks to Dr. Melinda Anderson, the Nakata Executive Director. Uh, Melinda scheduled this podcast interview and was going to be part of it to help me guest host, but unfortunately wasn't able to make it. So uh, Melinda is here in spirit with us, and I look forward to having her back on as a guest host real soon. So Dr. Mercer, we'd like to start out uh, each of our podcast interviews asking our guests to talk about your journey, your path, you know, what, what led you into higher ed and where you're at now? Well, it definitely was not a, a straight or, or linear path. Um, my grandmother was a school teacher in a one-room schoolhouse, um, actually um, was underneath what is now Tuttle Creek Lake. Tuttle Creek is a huge man-made lake in, in Kansas, and um, when they put the lake in, my grandparents um, had to move, move the farm. Um, I say it, it it worked out well because they they moved um, south of Topeka and my mom met my dad there and lived happily ever after. So, um, you know, thank thank goodness for Tuttle Creek Lake, right? Um, but she she was a, a a teacher. I consider myself a first generation student because I was the the first uh, person in my family to go to school. But interestingly. Um, when I was a junior in college, my mom started to college and she did concurrent credit at the um, community college that was offered at, at our high school site. And she began working on her degree in education as well. So I say I come from a long line of educators, but again, not a not a straight path. My first degree is in family and child development, and I taught at the preschool level and then really wanted to work with students that were um, a little bit older. And so I had um, 
the the opportunity to go back, I needed to earn a second bachelor's degree, um, thus four degrees from K-State. Again, not a linear path, but earned my, my elementary license and taught kindergarten, had the opportunity in a very small rural school to also be the library media specialist. So I did graduate work in that area. And that really allowed me to work with students five years old through seniors in, in high school. And so I had a, a, a wonderful experience in that small rural community and then began working on my doctorate degree and um, went to a regional teaching university and um, really thought I'd spend a couple of years there and, and ended up um, really liking and enjoying what I was doing. I was teaching, teaching um, children's literature to um, mostly elementary um, perspective teachers and then started doing a lot of work related to assessment and accreditation. Um, wound up being um, dean there for five years and then had the opportunity to come home. And, and truly, Kansas State University is my home. Um, and so have, have been dean 10 years, starting my 11th year as, as dean here at K-State. And this is, is definitely a special place to be. A lot of your time has been in education. You've gotten to work with so many students uh, from all ages. And like you were saying, K-State's very special to you. I mean, you've gotten your degrees from K-State, so bachelor's, master's, PhD, you work at K-State. What makes K-State special to you? Well, K-State is the first operational land-grant um, university under the Morrell Act. Um, and so from the very beginning, um, the mission of K-State has been to serve, to provide access to education and to um, really support and enhance the communities in which we live and work. And that's so close to my, my personal philosophy. I, I often use the word impact and impact drives me. How can we best impact lives in, in a positive way? And I've had some some very strong mentors along my path, and many of those came um, from right here at at Kansas State. So each time I needed to increase my knowledge base, add skills, think a little deeper about something, I turned to K State, and they were they were there there for me. So there's a a culture on our campus that I think is is very unique and very special. So if you stood in the middle of, of campus and randomly asked people that were walking by to describe our, our campus, you would hear, hear words like, you know, we believe in purple, our, our main school color, um, you know, we're the wildcats. But you would also hear words like family and community and care. And so, you know, just little things happen on our campus, like people wait to hold the door if you're coming coming along behind them. Um, there are greetings um, routinely, even if you don't know someone. It's just that culture where people visit and um, and they take care of each other. And that's students as well as faculty and staff. In fact, our, our students developed their own philanthropic arm because they saw that students were having to drop out of college when something something happened that they couldn't overcome financially. Um, it might be they needed help paying rent one month or their car broke down. Um, they, they needed to get home. The, the paycheck was gone and, and you know, there, there was a need there. 
And so they began fundraising and have their own uh, distribution method as a way to help students over those rough, rough spots, not, not tuition and, and books that come from scholarships and grants and loans, but those other expenses that occur as, as part of life. And I think that's um, an example of the kind of culture here at, at K-State. So it's truly a, a wonderful place to work. When I was being recruited to come back to K-State, um, I had a longtime faculty, faculty member say to me, Debbie, we don't always agree, but we always get along. And that type of culture um, doesn't happen overnight, and it takes um, nurturing and, and really reinforcing to, to make sure that that type of culture stays alive. But I found that again and again in, in discussions with, within the College of Education, that there are respectful ways to put a difference of opinion on the table and out as collaborative colleagues. And so that's, that's pretty special. And, you know, you're talking about a lot of these like little things, like whether it's someone holding a door or someone um, you're remembering something someone said um, and it stuck with you. Um, I know I've worked at Cal State San Bernardino for you know, now going on 18 years. And I remember things that happened when I was a student. And a lot of it wasn't necessarily something I learned in class, but it was something that I learned from or I just remember, you know, how someone was, you know, and being able to keep that relationship and, you know, be friends with them and just, you know, be have a lot of joy for where I work, you know, a lot of those things, you know, I, I still have in the back of my mind and I can still reference to anyone if I need to bring anything up. So definitely totally agree with that. Now, as um, Dean of the College of Education at K-State, you know, we were talking about before we re started recording that like some people might have the same title, but have way different job responsibilities. So like, how would you describe your position and, and your day to day? So ever changing, right? And that's part of what, what appeals to me. Um, so a, a great deal of my focus is on vision and strategic planning so that the college is positioned to be as strong and as impactful as, as we can possibly be. Kansas State University is very decentralized. And in a decentralized model, there's a great deal of autonomy and responsibility placed on the, the deans. Um, so I've served where I, I didn't have that that kind of autonomy and more decisions were made centrally within the college i'm i'm responsible for all hiring um i'm responsible for my enrollment management i'm responsible for my technology um, i'm responsible for our communications and all of our our social media um, and there are our resources centrally but those um, college level decisions all all fall on me so our college is somewhat unique at Kansas State in that I'm pretty evenly divided undergraduate and graduate students. So most colleges have many more undergraduate students than they do graduate students. I don't know that I'm atypical for a college of education, however, because most teachers uh, greatly value education. Graduate degrees help them move across on a pay scale. They might add specific areas of licensure. Um, but but pretty evenly divided, um, about 1,200 students at, at both levels. And then also unique about our college is most of our programming at the graduate level is delivered online. So we have a long history of distance delivery. Our geographic footprint, our, our geographic responsibility 
is, is very large, essentially the western half of the state of Kansas. And so we have, have long had faculty driving to remote locations to offer classes. Um, it was a period of time we chartered planes and we'd put faculty on a plane because Garden City was five hours away and it was much more efficient to, to use an airplane. Now, of course, we, we use um, Zoom or um, some type of video conferencing. And of course, that increased greatly during, during the pandemic. But even pre-pandemic, um, we had a strong foundation of distance delivery of, of courses. And so again, at the graduate level, most everything is, is online, except for some of those courses that accreditation mandates that we do face-to-face. -face. And we have for example, some school counseling courses where they're doing um, group skills and, and um, um, practicum development, those types of things. And so those are, are still face to face. At the undergraduate level, our elementary education program is entirely online as well as entirely on campus. So that that distance focus and the online digital focus has long been um um, tradition in our college and has just grown over over the course of of the decade that I've served as dean. And let's talk about that a little bit more because like with the College of Education, you know, you've had numerous initiatives, um, you know, using technology from, you know, there was like the iPad initiatives in 2014 to having um, open or alternative textbooks, you know, for, to faculty grants. Um, you know, do you think K-State and the College of Education have kind of always been ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to technology initiatives, even into now being in 2022? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, one thing that really changed my personal thinking was the arrival of my first grandchild. And so at four years old, Cadence had an iPad. So yes, she could turn the pages in a book because we, we read together frequently, but she could swipe with the best of them. And when she was four, I thought she's, she's, she's going to be in a kindergarten classroom next year. Is the teacher ready for this group of, of students whose brains are wired differently than ours because they've always had this, this technology? And equally so, are they ready for the child that has never had an iPad in their hands? And they're going to have both types of, of children in their, their kindergarten classroom. And so that really led to discussions within our college. And so we began a one-to-one -one iPad initiative. So as students were admitted to the College of Education, we checked out an iPad to them. And that was at a point in time when an iPad was about $800 a, a device. So they've definitely come down in, in, in cost um, over the years. But we wanted to level the playing field because we knew just like that kindergarten example, we had the same types of students in our college classes preparing to be teachers who next year was going to have my Cadence K in their kindergarten classroom. Right. So we, we issued iPads, faculty did a lot of professional development and learning and began using um, the, the iPad as a teaching and learning tool in our, our methods courses. So that was a, a huge step. Then we went um, a, another step and said, textbooks are so incredibly expensive and they're slow to change because it takes time to write 
and then publish and print and then get those to the bookstore. And by that point in time, there could be a two hour, or two hour, two year lag. So faculty, I began um, a faculty incentive grant and faculty that wanted to put together their own textbook resource for students um, could do so and earn summer salary dollars for doing that work. Then in turn, that was pushed out onto the iPads that the students had and um, faculty could update, update those literally in two hours if they needed to. They found something that, that um, a, a typo or something that they didn't quite like or they had new information that they wanted to add. They, they could do that just on an ongoing basis. So that, that was a huge benefit. The other huge benefit was the amount of dollars we save students in book costs because books are textbooks are so incredibly expensive, right? I mean, some upwards to $200. Um, and so our, our students have, have collectively saved um, about $2 million in those electronic resources that were pushed out to their, their iPads. And then, of course, we have the, the physical environment in which we teach. So we, we work hard to ensure that we have cutting edge technology in all of those rooms, um, sometimes similar to what they're going to step into when they, they walk into their first classroom. And sometimes it's pushing ahead of the curve so they can teach their school um, about something new that, that is um, very recent and very impactful. So technology has always been very important. Um, I feel like we pushed the, the limits there. And that was very evident when the, the pandemic hit and we had to say to faculty, get what you need out of your office. We're, we're shutting down Bluemont Hall. We're, we're closing Kansas State University's campus. Everyone is at home, but learning needs to continue. So our faculty that had given up paper syllabi years previously and all had their, we use Canvas or their Blackboard, whatever their learning management uh, system was, all of the handouts were, were already digitally available. They were used to being videoed and to capturing um, lectures and, and class discussions and, and pushing that out. But our transition in the pandemic, while, while stressful, was also very smooth. And that, that wasn't the case everywhere uh, across our campus for teachers that had only taught face-to-face -face and hadn't had those opportunities to really use and use technology and push it in, in new ways. So we learned a great deal during the pandemic, right? We learned that some students kind of thrived in this online environment where they had more autonomy over their schedule. And we also learned that that some students really felt isolated and, and alone. And um, so I think we're, we're bringing that learning back as we envision what does the future look like? Because it, it will be different. We know, we know that we're living in that now. Yeah, we're definitely living in that change. And let's talk maybe a little bit about um, the pandemic of sorts, because, um, you know, we're halfway through 2022, you know, we've been writing all these different changes, uh, shifts in priorities, a lot of different conflicting priorities that are competing priorities, I should say, you know, a lot of demand on staff and faculty. So as dean, like, how do you ensure that, you know, your staff and faculty um, are heard? 
Absolutely. So we have a strong um, faculty governing uh, structure within our college that that is very, very important to faculty and to to me. So we have a series of standing committees that um, tackle specific issues and then bring that before the entire faculty assembly. So that's one very strong route. We um, had all during the pandemic, um, of course, meetings were via Zoom. We, we became very proficient at, at using that. Um, Zoom weariness became a, a real thing, right? It was um, often e exhausting, but we're learning um, what, what do we pull forward with us? And so students were seeing some real behaviors um, from, from them. I mentioned our elementary program was online. And at, at one point, we advised those groups of students differently, whether they were online or face-to-face, or -face, because they tended to be very unique cohorts of students that chose one pathway or the other. Now what we see are students ebbing and flowing back and forth between the delivery modes um, that makes sense for their life. So it may be one semester they're, they are entirely online. Another semester they're entirely on campus. They may need to, to move home for a semester. They may um, have a work schedule that they need to accommodate. So this course that's only offered um, in the evenings, they take that online because it frees up time to, to do other things. So we're, we're seeing some real shifts there in students. With faculty and staff, um, I think we are in, in the middle of a dilemma, and that involves remote work. So we learned that a great deal could be done at home. And we also know that there's business that needs to be taken care of on campus because we have students face-to-face. So our advisors, for example, um, when, when they were at home, the, the, the work day between eight and five became very blurred, right? Because a student would um, want to have an appointment at seven o'clock at night. That's when they were available and, and free. So we had to kind of look at what does that look like? You can't start working at eight o'clock and work still you know, straight through and still be meeting with students late at night. But students like the ability to be able to text their advisor or email their advisor or get onto you know, our advising um, um, system and set up an appointment because they thought about it at two o'clock in the morning. And so providing those conveniences, while we don't lose that human touch, whether it's with students in their delivery mode, students in their advisor and access to support structures, or faculty and staff is, um, it is, is a dilemma that we have to figure out as, as, we, as we move forward. Some faculty want to be all online and work remotely. Others really need the interaction and need people and they want to be on campus. Um, but there are duties and responsibilities that could look different. And so how do we ensure equity? And so we're, we're kind of struggling with some of those questions and, and um, what does that look like? And, and how do we ensure, um, again, just that equity, not only across the college, but across the entire campus when someone with a similar title and a similar, similar set of job duties um, has very different ways of interacting and going about that work. So um, 
yeah, I think it's a societal issue that we're 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 wrestling with right now. And um, I, I look forward to working through those challenges because I think at the end we can come up with a system that maybe isn't. Um, I'll use the word intense and all demanding as what we had in the past where we did have people working 12, 14 hours a day in an, in an office. And it was just almost a frenetic pace. So we, we gave each other permission um, and, and provided grace to kind of step back a little bit during the pandemic and self-care became a, a mantra instead of a, a, a negative word. Um, and so I hope, we can continue that grace as we move forward through these processes. Yeah, it's definitely a continued conversation. So I appreciate you being so honest with that answer because yeah, it's something that pretty much all institutions are, are going through uh, somewhat. Um, so I wanted uh, to kind of go back and because one of the initial uh, questions you had mentioned like uh, scholarships, like student scholarships, and um, more specifically, I want to talk about uh, student teacher scholarships because I know that's super important uh, to you um, and to your college. You know, because I think from what I read, uh, you said something along the lines of like, you know, there's a story to be told about student teaching, you know, from the long hours that they have to do to the workload to the numerous pressures. Um, can you talk more about the student uh, teacher scholarship initiative that, that, that you have? Absolutely. So student debt is um, it, it, it is a burden that doesn't leave my mind um, as we think about preparing teachers. So in in Kansas, the um, only way someone can obtain a teaching license is from a four year accredited school. And that's different in in other states. But in Kansas, you you must hold a a bachelor's degree. And so increasing scholarships um, for students has been a a long term goal. When I I started, we were disseminating um, under $200,000 specifically from the college to, to students. Now we're, we're pushing 700,000, three quarters of a million annually in, in scholarships. So that, that's something we, we've talked about a great deal and our donors have been very responsive too. But much like other professions where an internship or residency is, um, practicum is required, um, we require a full semester in some programs, a full year in other programs of student teaching. The vast majority of our students are employed in, in, in some type of capacity, either on or off campus. And when they need to be in the school from 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon, that really limits the number of hours that they can work. Because not only are they in their, their student teaching classroom that amount of time, but then they're preparing um, in the evening for the next day, either preparing lessons or grading materials so that they can, can disseminate those back to students. So we knew that the number of hours available for them to work greatly um, lessened while they student taught at a time when we, we knew that there were increased responsibilities. And so that that story of, of student teaching and, and the, the stressors during that semester really resonated with our donors. And so we started a student teaching scholarship. 
um, that has continued to grow in dollars, and that is just for that time that that students are are student teaching, hoping to relieve some of that financial pressure that that they feel during that semester. So it's been very well received. And in fact, many of our donors have have stories to tell of their own student teaching semester. Um, one donor that um, was particularly generous said, I, she remembered buying five cans of Campbell's tomato soup at five cans for a dollar. And that was that was her lunch every day while while she student taught that that was what she could afford. And that's what got her through was that 20 cent can of, of soup. Um, so she was saying, if I can have, help someone else have a little bit more varied um, um, nutritional um, meals, she wanted to do that. And so it, it, it is something that really resonated with our donors and um, continues to grow. My long-term goal is to be able to scholarship every student teacher that we have at Kansas State during that semester and, again, take that, that financial pressure off. Yeah, that's truly amazing. And yeah, let's make that and let's make that goal happen. And, you know, one of the other initiatives, too, that that I read about was um, regarding like how you've led the college's concentration on international education and outreach. Um, And I think from what I saw, that was one of the programs was Go Teacher. So a contract that uh, train uh, 3000 teachers in English as as a foreign language. Can you talk more about that initiative? Absolutely. So um, reaching out to our international partners has um, has allowed the college to grow in very powerful ways. The program you just mentioned was actually with the government of the country of Ecuador, and their president really wanted to foster a bilingual culture within the entire country. And he felt strongly that the place to do that was to begin at the elementary school and be able to um, offer curriculum in in both languages and that that would would be the fastest way to to grow a bilingual population. And so both Spanish and English were were taught. They would send um, teachers to the United States and we oversaw all that, had large numbers right here on Kansas State's campus. They would study and then they would would go back. But it didn't just end there. When they went back to their classrooms in Ecuador, um, annually we send a team to Ecuador. They would go into classrooms, um, observe, evaluate, encourage. And so it really became a um, back and forth learning experience for us as, as well as for them. We've also had groups from Saudi Arabia. Um, I had the opportunity to take a group of students to Zayed University in um, the United Arab Emirates, um, partly through in the Qatar connection. Um, so anytime our students can travel abroad or students from other countries can come to Kansas State, it's just an enriching experience for all of us and a learn, learn, win situation. Hundred percent, and you were mentioning Nakata, and I think you know we can't have a podcast episode without talking about Nakata. And you know, you have been one of the like number one supporters of, of Nakata. What makes Nakata so special to you that you know you give like your time and your energy into the organization? Sure. Well, I use the word impact to describe what pushes me in the College of Education, and I think that word is very fitting to Nakata as well. That. Um, uh, 
often down to the individual level of impact where you see change in someone's life because an advisor was there at the right time with the information that was needed to allow a student to take that that next step. So Nakata has been at K-State for a a very long time. Um, We're we're on our third um, director um, of of Nakata and um, it has just continued to grow and change in in powerful ways. So we all know and love Charlie Nutt, right? Um, and my my first year as dean, Charlie and I both tell this story. Um, I I don't tell it with my face getting red, um, but my very first annual conference as a dean, where I needed you know I, I needed to be there on time, and I was looking forward to um, welcoming everyone to the conference. And my my flights were delayed. I didn't know if I was going to get in on time. And so I text Charlie, you know, I'm stuck in the airport. I'll get there just as soon as I can. Here's my timeline. I'm running down to the minute. Debbie. And in a couple of minutes, I get a text back from Charlie. Debbie who? Question mark. Well, you know, he's engrossed in a thousand details, right? And people coming at him everywhere. I can see, I I wish people could see us both laughing. Debbie Mercer, your boss. And so we we laugh about that um, on, on an ongoing basis. But Charlie is a, a dear friend and he was a phenomenal leader. And Nakata grew under under his leadership from um, just a, a couple of thousand members to upwards of 15,000. So huge growth. And with that growth in numbers of members came growth in services that Nakata provided. And all of those um, initiatives arose out of member need. And so how do we make an impact? So Melinda has, has been on, um, on staff for a, a little over a year, but of course a long time Nakata member and very, very involved in a variety of ways. So she was certainly no stranger to Nakata when she took over. But one of her major strengths is as a systems thinker and providing structure. And that's really what she spent this first year on. There was this this time of immense growth. And now do we have the, the structures in place that we need to support an international organization with 12, 13, 14,000 members? And then the pandemic caused us to step back and say, okay, some of the things we were doing we're so needed and we need to do more of that. And what are we doing that maybe isn't uh, as needed now? And how do we best use our time and, and resources as an organization as we come out from underneath this pandemic? And so of course, conferences are a, a, a big part of that because pre-COVID um, conferences help financially sustain Nakata and they were this 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 wonderful I call them almost a family reunion, right? Everybody is so glad to see each other, and they're so supportive, and those those connections um, deepened, and net, um, networks were strengthened, and um, new relationships were built, and so that's such an important part of the culture. And we had to step away from that for a couple years. And so now how do we build that back up in in a way that that stays true to those strengths and ensures that people feel feel safe and feel comfortable coming back into those those environments? 
And so I know those will be some of the, the conversations as, as we move forward. And I hope everyone is looking forward to Portland. And um, I hope we, we have a, a large group um, there ready to, ready to engage in, in very deep professional learning and strengthen those connections with each other, because that's what, that's what makes NACADA what NACADA is. The, the, the members and, and what they, they bring to the organization. We learn so much from each other. Yeah, and we got a glimpse of that um, last October when we were able to have the in-person conference in Cincinnati. So it shows that Nakata can definitely have a, a safe in-person conference and also still have the virtual components as well. So yeah, we definitely look forward to, to that uh, Portland conference uh, this October. And as we wind down uh, with the interview, you know, this podcast episode is being posted in mid-August, which is close to when many semester institutions start back uh, for the new academic year. Uh, do you have any words of encouragement or anything you'd like to say to uh, to the higher ed community as they start their, their new term? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Well, I love the energy that students coming back to campus bring in in the fall. Um, it's just an excitement and a renewal. We come back refreshed. We're we're ready to, um, you know, pro- propel ourselves forward. And um, so I say, you know, capture that wave and and uh, really celebrate this, because for the first time in three years, we're coming back to. A, an environment without restrictions. So last year we were still talking masks. And um, so we think about our seniors, our juniors, our sophomores all began their college experience with some type of pandemic related restriction. And hopefully if, if numbers don't continue to, to rise and we, we see some pockets of that happening, we'll be able to come back without those restrictions. And so I think a, a challenge that we all have is making sure that students feel connected and that those um, gathering places on campus are populated, whether that's a student union or a library or an area within an individual college or unit because we're, we're establishing new behaviors for everyone, for all of our students and for ourselves as faculty and, and staff. And then I, I, frequently, um, I, I frequently say this, but whatever rejuvenates you, whether that's spending time with friends or being alone, reading a book or going out to eat, um, exercising, going for a walk. For me, I, we have horses and that's my... I can just, the weight of the world comes off my shoulders then. So whatever that is, I encourage each person to find that and carve out time to do that. And that, that is so important. And that's something the pandemic taught me is 
Um, it's, it's okay to step back. It doesn't mean I'm shirking my responsibilities. It doesn't mean I'm not getting things done, but it's mean, it means I'm paying attention to what I need. And then I know I'm much more um, rejuvenated, much more um, mentally present for, for all those that need me to carry on the responsibilities that, that I have. So whatever that activity is, find it, identify it, and then carve out time to do it. Absolutely. Beautifully said. And last question I have uh, for this interview is I heard that you had also you co-wrote a book called uh, K-State and Alphabet uh, Journey Across Campus. Uh, can you tell us more about that book and kind of the inspiration behind it? Absolutely. So we, we've talked about four degrees from K-State. My, my love of K-State is is very evident. Um, Dr. Lotta Larson is also on um, the elementary education faculty here at K-State. She also has the unique distinction of four degrees from K-State. We said there are so many wonderful traditions and spaces on our campus. Both of us shared a, a love of children's literature and we said, let's, let's write this alphabet book. And so we did. Um, realistic photos are, are throughout. So people recognize those um, iconic buildings and, and, and different places on our campus. Um, we, we talk about our football program. We, we talk about the dorms. We talk about our, our international students. Um, so it, it does just walk through each letter and highlights um, special things that are, are unique to our, our campus. So that was a joy. And then just um, this past year, Matt, I had a donor um, ask, asked her to write a book about the original Bluemont Bell. So of course, K-State started out as a, as a private college um, in, in the 1860s. Um, a, a bell was uh, commissioned, came first by train and then by covered wagon to Kansas State's campus, hung in our administrative building for quite some time and then was replaced with an electric cauldron. I had a, a faculty member, um, um, and their family had the bell removed from the very top spire of Anderson Hall with a crane, um, had it refurbished, and it hangs outside the education building. And she wrote the, the, the story behind that bell. And so it's listen and you will hear the call. And, you know, that, that call is, is often symbolic to the work that we do, whether we're an advisor, a teacher, or um, a, a, a a label I would give all of us is that we're educators, right? And we 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 have that call from within us to um, help others, to impact others, to support others. And I think there's nothing more noble than we can do that we can do other than to impact a life positively. Love it. Yes, we all have that, and we all have that call. So, Dr. Debbie Mercer, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you, Dean Mercer, for joining the podcast today. And thank you to Dr. Melinda Anderson for scheduling this interview. On to the next interview with Mark Nelson. All right, so let's now welcome to the podcast Mark S. Nelson. Mark is an academic advisor with the Center for Global Learning at Oklahoma State University. A native of Kansas City, Kansas, Mark's journey in academic advising began from his own misunderstanding of choosing a college major. 
Upon completing his bachelor's degree, Mark felt unsatisfied with his own path, leading him to pursue higher education for the past 12 years. Mark's academic advising experience and philosophy grounds itself in equity-mindedness and practice. Throughout his career, Mark approached academic advising as a means for assisting students with carrying their ambitions to a major that plausibly connected them to their aspired career pathway. Through his study of the literature and experience through practice, Mark sustains equity-mindedness in academic advising to be a practice where advisors intentionally partner with students to discover and explore the realities of their endeavors through the resources provided by the institution and the students' possessed resources. Presently, Mark is completing his PhD in educational leadership from Oklahoma State, playing tennis, and spending as much time with his wife, Sharzad. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here, Matt. Yeah, glad for you to be here, too. Um, I think this will be a, a fun interview. A lot of tidbits, you know, from us talking before uh, we recorded for the podcast. So I can't wait for listeners to, to get to listen to your interview. So let's start it off. Um, what was your path, your journey into higher ed? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really good question. You know, so I started off when I was actually in high school. Um, I went to Sumner Academy of Arts and Sciences, Kansas City, Kansas, and I initially wanted to be a teacher. But uh, deep down inside, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. So uh, I gave up wanting to be a teacher to go into uh, law, and I picked the major that I thought would get me to law school. And the hard part about picking that major uh, to be honest, I picked that major from a from a simple brochure that came in the mail, and I didn't do a lot of research on that on that uh, major. And and to be honest, I found out uh, around my sophomore junior year that I didn't like that major. And then I started looking at the pathways that could that that major could take me if I didn't go to law school. And and I and I'll be honest, I got a little disappointed. And I thought to myself, if only somebody would have told me this. But then I also got to myself and I said. What if I would have done more research myself? Um, so, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't get into law school, which was which was fine. But I ended up going to uh, to in the higher education. I joined the, uh, the master's program at Kansas State, uh, where I also got my bachelor's degree. And, um, you know, I, I, I met Charlie Nutt. Charlie Nutt was my uh, history and philosophy of higher education instructor. Um, and I had, you know, people like, you know, Christy Kraft, Aaron Karlstrom, uh, Ken and uh, Judy Huey. So I had, you know, a lot of those faces that Nakata has seen before uh, as instructors. And they played a major role in me uh, uh, growing and becoming better. Dr. Dr. Uh, Doris Carroll also. I can't I can't forget her. Uh, so I, I got a chance to, to really, uh, really get into the idea of what it looks like to be an academic advisor. In the K-State program, which I was so fortunate to be a part of, uh, focused on a counseling element. Uh, and, and 
And people will think, well, wait a minute, Mark, your academic advisor, you're not a counselor. Okay, that's true. But when you're in that session, you are breaking down, uh, you know, some of the barriers uh, that may be uh, occurring. So, you know, Jenny Bloom uh, down there at FAU might say you're disarming the process through appreciative advice. Right. So I learned how to do that in, in my master's degree. Uh, and, and I've, I've uh, had the opportunity to help a lot of students really kind of break down some of those barriers so that they can see what opportunities a major presents in terms of the career pathway. Uh, but that's how I got into higher education. And I've been doing it uh, again for about 12 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for quite a while. And then I know we've seen each other at multiple Nakata conferences. And so this is kind of like the first time we're actually getting to have an in-depth conversation, which is really, really nice. Um, and you're mentioning uh, Charlie Nutt. And so we just had Charlie on our previous episode and it was kind of his kind of goodbye in a way because he just recently retired. Of course, he'll st- still be around and still be, you know, mentoring and connecting with individuals, probably see him at conferences. But uh, since it was just recently that he officially retired and uh, this is going to be on an August podcast episode uh, and anything you want to say about Charlie? Charlie Nutt exuberated the uh, passion and excitement for higher education, but he also exuberated hard work. And he really showed us, uh, us being myself and my peers, he showed us what hard work looked like uh, in in, in higher education. It's not just in the advising office, but it might be advocacy. It might be reaching across campus uh, to to foster those relationships with, uh, with other academic advisors or the registrar's office or the bursar's office or a a scholarship financial aid office. So he really fostered that. And in that history class, you know, we read John Thielen, but we also read, you know, about, um, you know, how student affairs really morphed and shifted itself in the 60s and 70s and what that looked like and what and how that how that how that was different, you know, in the in the 1600s, you know, when when the Harvards and all that came to be. Uh, and so he really kind of shaped that shaped that for us. And, and he's a he's a person that that not only practices what he preaches, but he walks the walk. What he says he's going to do, he does. It. So and that, that's something that I really learned from Charlie. And to this day, I'm very grateful for uh, for Charlie Nutt. Two things you just said, like with the, the hard work and then, like you said, practice what you preach. That's exactly what he, what he always does and will still continue to do. When you were in grad school, you're no stranger from podcasts. I thought we were talking that a little bit before. You had mentioned that uh, you also dabbled into podcasting. I did. Yeah. I, I, uh, I have to say, I respect, uh, I respect you cause you know, you've, uh, curated, you know, so many episodes of this and you really made it, you know, it's taken off, you know, globally. Uh, but I did, I think one podcast episode for a class and it was a history class for my PhD. And we really talked about, you know, financial barriers for students in that class. And, and that's when I really got into equity mindedness. What does that look like? And, and 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 through my own practice, I've really seen like a lot of times we're talking about equity. Benjamin would describe equity as you know uh, in, uh, addressing uh, inequities or or inequalities in educational outcomes for historically underserved groups. And we're talking about historically underserved groups. You know, we're talking about you know disenfranchised students of color. We could be talking about socioeconomic status. We could be talking about military veterans. We could be talking about education status, class, religion, uh, language barriers, and, and so on and so forth. 
But but in that in that podcast, you know, I really learned and really learned about the 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 importance of building a story and telling a story. And that's something that we do. If you think about it, that's something that we do as academic advisors. We help students build their stories and we do that through course selection. We do that through getting them to the right resources and things like that. And something that I find so, so pivotal in terms of putting together a podcast or in terms of finding someone's financial background, how they're going to pay for school, how they're going to finance their degrees. Uh, you have to really come up with, you know, figure out what their resources are um, and what they're bringing to the table. And then how can, according to Benson's definition, how can we help fill the gap? You know, and that's where it gets tricky in, in, in academic advising. Um, and a lot of times I believe, uh, and this is, will be the shape of my dissertation, so I don't want to get too far into it, but that's where I believe uh, academic advisors may overstep the boundary, the classic definition of academic advisor. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure, too, like if someone's either a new advisor or, you know, let's say they've been advising for quite a few years, it, it is one of those things where it's something where, you know, how far do I go? What do I ask? What am I supposed to be doing? You know, what is my my role? And it's almost like it's an ever expanding role, you know, and then, mm -hmm. you know, some people hear advisor, they think counselor. You actually might have some academic advisors that have the actual title of counselor um, sure. in their job title. So I think that could also lead to some some confusion as well. Uh, but maybe this is a good segue into talking about it and to talk about your, your dissertation um, and your Ph.D. program. Sure. So, you know. I think one of the biggest challenges for me when it comes to like the literature that I've, I've, um, that I've found is, you know, understanding the true definition of academic advising. And I know for the sake of the literature and the fact that we as, uh, uh, as an organization or we as a, just a profession, I should say, we're, you know, we're so small and so knit and we want to, we want to keep, we want to kind of keep it so that we can establish, you know, what we are and what academic advisors are all about. But one of the greatest challenges that I have found in just talking to the membership base is that we all have different duties and we all come from different parts of campus. We all come from different walks of life and we all bring different things to the table. So when we're working with students, something that we have to really think about is how does our story mesh with our student's story? And how can we not be uh, too intrusive or too overbearing when we're working with students? Uh, to, so, so to provide you a quote again from, uh, from Stella Benson, you know, she said in the 2018 article, she said, intrusive uh, counseling and advising as a practice means being proactive in offering help and support to students. But it can also be troubling if the practitioner exercises intrusive advising and lacking the understanding of how their role, whether it be uh, whiteness or institutional racism or anything like that, and I'll just simplify that by saying their superior authoritative role could impede a student's success. So, for example, uh, I, I think of myself, I, I identify uh, as a cisgender uh, black 
male. I'm biracial, but I identify as black. Well, there's something and I, there are a few things I have to think about. And I'm right here in Stillwater, Oklahoma, US of A. And, and it's in the county of Payne County, 75,000 population. And I think about, you know, who I am. Well, I'm a black man. I identify as a black man. So let me back up. I've been working with freshman students for eight years. When students come in, I have to ask myself, have they ever encountered someone that looks like me? 6'3", 300 pounds, big spirit, confident, can be a tad bit, you know, maybe overbearing, you know, because of what I do. I can be very intrusive just by walking into the room, you know. Have they ever experienced that? More so, have they ever experienced, you know, being around a black male in a teaching and advising role? Okay, so we got to go back and look at the statistics. How many black men fill the role of being a certified teacher in the United States system of higher, uh, nice system of uh, secondary and elementary education? Matt, the statistic is 75,000. So to give you an idea, Every single black male teacher can fit in Payne County. They can live in Payne County and, and, and be comfortable. So that tells me that the students that come into my office may not have had an experience with a black man as a teacher or a counselor or an advisor. So what I have to do, when I'm talking about equity and inclusion, or I'm talking about uh, you know working on these things, I have to make sure that if I'm going to really think about Benjamin's definition, I have to think about, okay, how am I going to present myself so that my students, whether they be white, black, Hispanic, Asian American, Pacific Islander, what have you, whether they be male, female, or non-binary, whether they be Christian, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, Hindu, what have you, what is that going to look like and, and how can I get across? And I have this mug here, stay true. How can I also stay true to myself while helping them out? And that involves bringing my story into the advising session, not to be overbearing, but to give them an, an insight of where I come from while learning about where they come from so that we can have an understanding as to who we are as people, and then we can build on that and, and hopefully uh, build a relationship and get them to where they need to be. I could see a question coming up from like, let's say an advisor that's like, this sounds all great, but if I have, let's say, a 30 minutes with this student and sure. hopefully maybe I see him, you know, a, a couple months from, from, from now and I can build a rapport throughout their time at the institution, how am I trying to get to the, you know, learn about more about the student and their story and how am I supposed to, you know, factor in my story and, and make it seem like it, it's like it's organic versus I'm kind of forcing like, here's my story. Sure. You know, and that's a great question. You know, you can't do everything in a, in a 30 minute uh, period, just like I can't write a dissertation in a day. Right. Um, it starts with the little things. And one thing I had to learn in my 10 year career, and when I learned this, I slept a lot better at night. When I finally accepted this, you have to treat uh, every student as if they don't know. They're going to students are going to ask the same questions over and over and over and over and over again. But you have to answer those questions like they just like, you know, the, like they don't know. 
you should never go into uh, in a, an advising meeting uh, thinking that, okay, well, they don't know anything or they should already know this. You just answer the questions. And if you meet those small expectations, it could be something just as small as like, okay, well, I have a question about financial aid, you know, and if you point them into the right resources or you give them the right answers to those questions and get more information, that that trust is going to build. And then when that trust builds, they're going to come back and you're going to give them a little bit more and then you're going to give them a little bit more and then you're going to give them a little bit more and slowly but surely that that relationship is going to uh is going to grow it's going to matriculate now something that um i was rather envious of in my previous role in university college advising is i only work with first year students so you know now i had a benefit where i taught them in the first year seminar class so i got to know them inside the classroom but then i also had to get to know them outside the classroom in the one-on-one environment um I was fortunate enough to get to know them, but most of the time, by the time I got to know them, it was time for me to declare them to their new advisor. So I had to get them ready for that new advisor. I had to set that, I had to set that tone. I had to build that bridge so that when they go into that, they go into that new advisor, they have the expectations of what what academic advisor can provide them. And they also have the expectations of the department. You know, and uh, go, for a student going into, let's say, the College of Engineering, their advising uh, experience may look very different than a student going into the College of Business, you know, or the College of Education or the College of Architecture, you know. So it's just kind of building that uh, building that bridge and what that looks like. So as an academic advisor, I needed to be aware of what their potential advising session would look like for the future. For, for an advisor that's going to be with that student for, for the duration of four years, you know, they get a little bit, you know, they get a little bit of an advantage because they get to build slowly and surely over the course of of time. And maybe that's sending a positive email. Uh, maybe that's, you know, seeing them on campus and just waving and saying hello. Uh, maybe that's sending them a card or setting up a campus event where they can just see your face and that person can walk by a table and say, hey, that's my academic advisor. That's the person that helped me enroll, you know. So just building those bridges and, and that's that's the way you um, that's the way you that's the way you do it. But it's slowly but surely taking it one step at a time. Yeah. And I've noticed that, too, with um, like we're doing most institutions going through orient- summer orientations right now for their new students. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, my colleague and I, uh, we we have worked on a program, a graduation pledge program. So we've gotten to see students from when they first started as a first year student to now in their junior, senior year. And we see some of them are um, uh, orientation leaders and, you know, they know us by name and we know them because of that. And so it is something where, you know, you were talking about how you're going, you know, working with first year students. So it is like you're building that, trying to slowly but surely build that uh, rapport with them. But then now you got to pass them off to the next advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully during that time, they are still able to kind of build that relationship. Now, you um, a couple of years ago, you co-authored um, an article on academic advising today. And a lot of these elements that you're talking about, I noticed that when I was reading that article are in there. Um, and that was on, on advising uh, black male students in 2020 um, and beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one that uh, you co-wrote with like Loxley Nibs, Quentin Alexander, uh, Daryl Sherry, Bill Johnson, and uh, Josh, uh, JJ Johnson. Um, can you talk more about um, 
you know, that whole process of working with them and then uh, publishing this article? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, because that was, I'm, I'm going to tell you all, that was, I think, um, that was a magical process. So let, let's break it down. So 2020, you know, we're all locked down. We're all in COVID. And all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden, George Floyd, well, well, let's back up. Let's back up to that day. So first and foremost, we had the encounter at Central Park with the gentleman uh, and the dog and, and, the, and the woman. She's walking her dog and the dog wasn't on the leash. Uh, black male confronts her about it. She calls the police, you know, so that happened in the morning. OK, so tensions are high. And then George Floyd uh, ultimately is is killed, uh, you know, in, um, in in Minneapolis. And, you know, so we're already on lockdown. We have COVID and all this stuff is just building on and it just kind of blows up. And, you know, I'll be honest, I, I you know, what, what really brought me into writing this article um, with 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 those gentlemen that you named, I, I had a meeting uh, with the ELP group and I could tell that a lot of people just really didn't know how to respond. And then I looked at uh, my own colleagues at the time in our office uh, at, in UCA and University College Advising at Oklahoma State University, and, and they just didn't know how to respond. And I looked at my own campus at the time, and there just wasn't much of a response. And I just said to myself, I'm like, okay. Um, and keeping in mind what happened with Colin Kaepernick some years before, and just all the just tension and people taking sides and things like that. And I just said to myself, okay, what can I contribute right now uh, to, to, for people just to maybe get an understanding? And, you know, I, I was talking to uh, Loxley Nibs at the time, and, and then he talked to Quentin Alexander, uh, and then uh, my, my good brother, Daryl Cherry. I was on the committee with him for first year success. He was the chair of that committee. And then uh, Joshua J.J. Johnson. If anyone's ever met J.J. Johnson, man, J.J. is just a bright light. When you walk in, he walks into the room, you're just happy. I love J.J. Johnson. That's my brother. He's just a, he's just good people. And then uh, this guy, Bill Johnson, as well, you know, just a smart guy, been around the Dakota for a long time. Um, and so I, I, I thought about those five, those, those five brothers. And I thought about everything that they brought to the table and I thought about their experiences. And I just asked it. I asked them the co-author if we could co-author an article together. Uh, I got with Lee Cunningham, uh, you know, and Lee says a great idea. And we co-authored this, this article and, and every single one of us contributed, you know, part of ourselves in that article because all of us were concerned about it. All of us were concerned about, you know, how do we, you know, help black men get through this? And I don't think that went through, went went in vain because when we came out of uh, the 2020, 2021 semester at my own campus, you know, sadly, you know, I learned and found that, you know, our, our African-American students were the ones that were least likely to be retained because of COVID, you know, uh, for, for various reasons. Uh, and I'm sure that was a national trend. But we, all, we thought about the emotional element. We thought about you know, why would this, you know, you know, what are black males going through as they come into campus in 2020? Um, you know, there are several football programs across the uh, across the nation. 
that that took on a voice uh, after this happened. The Big 12 uh, did it. You know, various schools, University of Texas, Oklahoma State, Kansas State, they all, you know, all these programs did it. Alabama, they had a march down in uh, Tuscaloosa. Um, you know, but then there are also some coaches that pushed back, you know, like, you know, Dabo Sweeney at Clemson pushed back. And, and, you know, so we saw the pushback and we saw, and we saw the reservations and we saw some coaches who embraced it. So we just wanted to get out there and we wanted to just make this, let's make a voice, uh, and be kind of the common presence and just let that be known that, Hey, this is what you need to do for that African American male student who's coming in front of you. And, and, that per, and let me backtrack. That person may not be African-American. We also define black male in that piece, you know, and we define that black male could come from any, any corner of the globe. So, but that's what it looked like. I, you know, my ultimate goal was to bring people together, uh, bring those, bring those men together. And, and we all just write something very special. And Lee Cunningham was so kind, you know, she gave us a webinar too. And, and it was just a phenomenal, it was a phenomenal experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll include the the link for the article in our show notes as well. And yeah, and that was going to be a point I was going to make too, is that, yeah, this eventually turned also into a webinar. So it gets more exposure to more individuals. Anyone gets a chance to read or hasn't read it, yeah, please look at the show notes, look at the link, and then it's it's a really informative read. And kind of, I guess, connected to this too is, you know, we're talking about this article connected to Nakata. And then also within Nakata, you're the chair uh, for inclusion and engagement committee. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is I think this was the committee that was formerly known as the diversity committee um, and something that has went on with Nakata since I think about the early 2000s. So tell me about being part of this committee. What what is the, the inclusion engagement committee supposed to be doing? What, what are the goals? Sure, sure. Well, you know, um, as you stated, that the, the, it was formulated as a diversity community in the early 2000s, and the name change took place in around I want to say 2016. And it took, and it, if I'm not mistaken, it took about three years to really come up with the name change. And in our mission and our charge uh, as a, as a committee is to really uh, support Nakata through its quest to become more inclusive and more equitable and more engaging for the membership base. I started out, Carol Pollard uh, was was my chair. Uh, and I'm grateful for Carol to this day because she asked me to be on, on the committee back in 2015. And in the first two years, I learned, I just learned from her. And, I, and all these big names that are coming through that committee, I just learned about Nakata. Um, and I learned that, you know, at the time, the diversity committee was all about starting conversations and getting them back up to the board or getting them to the council. So those conversations could be had not only not only in those uh, entities, but also in the executive office. You know, Charlie Nutt was very, very, uh, uh, very, very uh, hands on and very, very a part of these conversations. And he wanted to flush out more. And one of the central uh, uh, questions and, and goals that 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 was all in the kata was how do we get more people who from these underrepresented groups as defined by Bensonman, uh, how do we get them active and involved in the kata? How do we get them in emerging leaders program? How do we get them on the board or on the council and committees and things like that? And you know, a lot of times the 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 common thing to do in higher education as a whole is to stick people that look like me and perhaps like you, Matt onto a diversity committee, right? 
And what I appreciate about that committee, we had conversations about how to get people into their areas where they want to be. So, for example, if someone wants to work with REI, race, ethnicity uh, initiatives, then they can go work in that group. But if someone wants to work in theory and history, like like my good friend Bill Johnson or success coaching like Bill Johnson, we can get them into a group or like my good friend, you know, uh, Joshua Johnson, who wants to work with who, who works with uh, military veterans in his in his prior position. We can get him into that group. Or Daryl Cherry, who, who works with, you know, uh, 100 black men and first year success. Well, we can get him into that group. So making sure that we are marketing and we are making sure that our committees are aware of people that are out there and making sure that our memberships are also aware of the committee. So we're bridging the gap between two. And, you know, and I tell people when they come in, I said, that is a process that's going to take the rest of the existence of Nakata. It is never going to be a happily ever after ending. It's always happening. It's always happening. And you have to find new ways of doing it. So maybe for five years, you engage social media. Well, maybe then the next five years, maybe you engage writing. You know, you engage, uh, uh, you know, scholarship through through writing. Maybe next five years and you go back to social media again. So it's a lot of different elements that occur uh, to, to make that happen. And those are the conversations that we have, you know, at, in the in the what used to be formerly known as the diversity committee and now the inclusion and engagement committee. And if I may add something that uh, some conversations that I've had presently with the committee that I chair, the IEC, uh, we are talking about, you know, our stories again. So going back to that story that I talked about early, you know, um, in, in my own in my own graduate studies, I've learned about positionality and reflexivity. And for the for the folks who aren't uh, you know who aren't familiar with research, positionality and reflexivity focuses on what does the researcher bring into the study. How does the researcher's influence? How does the researcher's biases and position and and experiences influence the study? You know, so for example, you know, I bring my I bring my own bias and my own twist into a study based upon my own lived experiences. And I have to be aware of that. So one thing that we're working on as a committee, uh, you know, this summer is we're talking about that positionality and that reflexivity. And and that's where we're starting to define uh, our stories and what kind of advisors we may be or what kind of professionals we may be. And and that's what I'm hoping to do with my that's what I'm hoping to do with my committee for my last year of my term. With any committee, no matter what's Nakato or anywhere else, sometimes that that change can be slow. Um, do you find like with your committees um, and even just you know being chair, uh, do you find like the support is is there that that you need? Um, is there sometimes I don't know red tape may not be the the right term to use, but um, that if something hasn't been done before that there might be some pushback to it or, you know, how, how do you go about make, making that change and making it happen? I think the biggest thing I try to remember and I, and I always tell my, my uh, committee this, and this is something that I've heard too, change takes time. Um, and, and one of the things when we talk about equity and there have been a lot of scholars that have said this, uh, uh, Castillo uh, Montoya wrote about in 2020, she wrote about the challenges and tensions of, of equity mindedness you have to be cognizant and aware that not everybody's ready for, for you to, you know, uh, 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 stoke the flames at the campsite. Right. 
some people are going to embrace the warmth. Some people are going to embrace the, the, the flame, meaning some people are going to be ready for the hard conversation. Some people are going to be ready for, you know, um, you know, people being upset, but some people aren't. But then some other people are going to also be like, well, wait a minute, I don't understand. Help me figure this out. And this is where I got to talk about uh, uh, Dr. Melinda Anderson. And that's what I love about her. She said this in the Lawrence, Kansas uh, Region 7 conference. She said, she said, one thing that we have to do when we're talking about DEIBA, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, belongingness, and awareness. I just shorted to DEI. <laughs> um, but uh, we have to always remember, especially if you're part of an underrepresented group, you have to remember that people aren't going to always understand and you have to be patient and you have to be cognizant. Well, that goes back to working with our students, right? We have to be aware. Okay. My student may not understand this struggle. The student may not understand, you know, that they have to do X, Y, and Z to get this done. Right. But we also have to understand that, you know, our colleagues may not understand the, 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 the urgency in the matter. So, for example, uh, you know, when 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 statements have come out about, uh, you know, uh, the George Floyd verdict, I actually I'll tell you this story. So when George so when the George Floyd verdict came out, you know, when uh, Derek Chauvin was, uh, you know, was uh, found guilty, um, you know, I was thinking in my head, I was like, oh, OK, well, Nakata needs to come out with something. And I was like, well, wait a minute, man, you're in the inclusion engagement committee. At the time I was the chair elect, you need to tell people. Okay, well, let's start doing this. And you may even have to help write that letter. And I did. Right. But one of the things that I that I tried to do was the people who got involved with that. I'll let them. I tried my best to let them have a voice. And when someone said, well, you know, we don't want to take away your voice. And I said, it's not my voice. It's our voice. You know, so that's part of being inclusive. You know, I tell people, take your time and just enjoy the experience of Nakata. We're not going to change Nakata overnight, but we can slowly help build something, you know, overnight. And we can really, really, really make it special. Uh, but it's not going to happen overnight. And it's not going to happen for a $75 membership, right? We have to be aware that there are a lot of different things that have to happen. And there are a lot of conversations that need to happen on the back end. And that's okay. That's how we learn that's the key goal of professional development. And that's what I tell myself when I go into a meeting. That's when I tell myself when I may have to tell my committee that this may take some time. That's what I tell myself when I send an urgent email to Melinda Anderson or not have sent an urgent email to Charlie Nutt. Or, you know, I just tell myself this may take some time. This may take some explaining. But I can that gives me the opportunity for them to see where I'm coming from, but it also gives me the opportunity to see where they're coming from. So that's what I do. Yeah, no, I think that's just great life advice in general. Um, yeah, things take time and, you know, it's enjoy the process. It's really all about the process. And then mm -hmm. how much do you want it? And then, you know, do you follow up with it as well? And so it seems like it's being proactive with a lot of it. Sure. Um, and then two years is a short time to, to be in a, a position like that as, as chair of the IEC. Can you run again? Or is it one of those where it's like the two years and then it just goes to the next person? Do you feel like you'll still be be part of it, um, still working to make, make change even after your term is up? 
Sure, that's a good question. So the way that the Nakata structure, leadership structure works, uh, typically for the committee. So we're talking about the administrative side, and I think it's very similar on the uh, on the community side as well. But uh, so typically you're a part of a committee, you're appointed to a committee for two years. And at the end of that two years, you become eligible to run for the chair or leader position of that committee. So that automatically gives you four years. So you have right there by running for a chair position, you have staked at least four years into a chair position. Now, after that, after you finish your two-year term, you get two years as the as immediate past chair. So now you have at least committed six years to that committee. So in my case, I have committed, I will commit when it's all said and done, I will commit 10 years to the diversity, uh, excuse me, the equity and inclusion uh, committee. Uh, two years under Carol Pollard, uh, 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 two years under my good friend, Michelle Smith, where two years under my good friend Loxley Nibs uh, and Carol Pollard is my good friend too. And then myself two years as chair. And then I will support the uh, chair who, who comes after me. And then uh, I will go on to further endeavors in the Kata. And I, and I, what I appreciate about that is, um, you know, I'll, I'll always, you know, have a, maybe a voice or a seat or, you know, or, or some kind of position or authority in the IEC, but I recognize that, you know, for professional development, it is important that we transition so other people can can uh, can get that experience. So um, I'm not allowed to rerun, which is good. Uh, but as a, as a chair right now, and I'm going to be doing this in my second year, I'm going to be really encouraging people in the committee now to pick up uh, to, to pick up where I left off, because I think that's very important. And I'm really excited about it because there's a lot of potential on my committee. Yeah, and I always think too, like uh, no matter what committee it is, whoever comes in next, like you're just building upon what what's already there, and every person that comes next is just going to make it better and better and better. Sure. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, let's talk a little bit more about uh, maybe your work uh, at Oklahoma State University. Like, how would you describe your institution and the Center uh, for Global Learning? Well, uh, that is a new role that I'm going to be starting here in a couple of weeks. I am so excited. Uh, you know, on paper, I'm transitioning from academic affairs to student affairs. So we're going to see what that looks like. But what I'm going to be doing in this new role, uh, I will be working uh, with the uh, Center for uh, uh, Global Studies and specifically within the Office of uh, Study Abroad. And I will be working with those individuals on how to conduct their advising processes for students who are getting ready to study abroad. Uh, and we're also going to be doing some small things about like how to help market study abroad uh, uh, for students who are on campus. So I so when so you know the way it was described to me was you know you have that small cluster of students who come to college they already know they want to study abroad, so you know they're they're pretty easy. Then you have a you have a cluster of students who may be on the fence. They've heard about it, you know, but they may think, okay, well, I can't do this with my major. That's not always true. So you can help them find a plan. But then you have students who don't know what study abroad is, and they may not know it's for an option. So I hopefully uh, plan for the next year or so is to kind of tap into those those latter two clusters and kind of see what what we can do for them. Uh, part of that's going to be uh, maybe potentially. 
uh, uh, recruiting faculty members to do a nine, 10 day trip, you know, somewhere that may also be uh, working with academic advisors and helping students uh, uh, find experiences and sustain uh, 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 space within their uh, within their their class schedule so that they can go study abroad. One thing that uh, I'm so blessed and privileged to know is that you know you know my my boss he he knows and understands that that not every student uh, may not feel that they can study abroad. So for example, just by default, professional degrees can be very uh, uh, can be very hard when it comes to getting students to study abroad. So engineering, teaching, even a, a professional degree like accounting, journalism, you know, those may be difficult programs depending upon the curriculum that the institution or department has set forth for a student to study abroad during their junior year. A lot of times with engineering students, for example, or, or even nursing students, you know, when they get to that, that third year, that's when they're starting to take their core classes for, you know, for their for their uh, for their professional degree. Right. Because, you know, an engineer is going to get a professional degree uh, at the end of their at the end of their academic career. So, you know, how what does that look like? You know, maybe they can't they, maybe they can't spend a spring in Barcelona or a spring in Paris because they have to take, you know, some of their courses, their junior year to be ready for. But perhaps they can do, you know, a nine day trip in, in May or a spring break trip, or maybe they can get away and do a summer, uh, you know, something like that. So just making them aware of those opportunities and also helping academic advisors know and understand those opportunities as well so that they they don't indirectly uh, discourage students from taking part in those opportunities. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that's a great point. Sometimes like we'll know that, okay, the study abroad office exists and these are some places they might go to, but we may not know what the process is or that they do have a, a summer one or something in between terms where it's like, well, I don't need to spend the whole semester. I can maybe just spend a few weeks there and maybe that works more with, with their schedule. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And as we get towards the end of, of this interview, um, a lot of great information that you've given. Uh, so we talked a lot about um, the work that you've done, like at your institution within Nakata, your new role that's coming up, uh, which I hope goes super well. That sounds really exciting. Start that one in, in, in a few weeks. Um, but what what's your what do you do outside uh, of work? It's a lot that you're doing within Nakata and your institution. But how are you de-stressing? How are you um, you know taking care of yourself as well? Oh, man. Yeah. I appreciate you asking. Well, you know, uh, I try, you know, so like I said, like I said in my bio, I play tennis. Uh, I'm a, I'm actually a proud board member of the tennis Stillwater, excuse me, the Stillwater Tennis Association. I just got I just I was just accepted on the board for that. That's a wonderful experience. Um, I also uh, I golf a little bit. I haven't golfed in a while. Golf can get kind of pricey and it's, it's too hot to golf right now. Let's just be real. Um, so I'm doing that. Uh, I spend as much time with Sherzad. Sherzad and I both lo uh, love to cook, so you know we'll we cook and just you know she she cooks. She's Iranian, so you know she's introducing me to Iranian cuisine. I'm introducing her to different types of American cuisine, so that's fun. Um, and then we also and then I also just um, I'm also uh, work at the local YMCA where um, I officiate uh, you know basketball. And that's fun because it's a developmental league. And so, you know, as an official, I'm teaching, I'm helping kids learn the game of basketball. So, 
you know, I do all those things and, and that, that just kind of keeps me sane. And I'm also very active in my uh, my church's men's ministry. So, uh, you know, I, I keep busy. And uh, on top of that, writing a dissertation. And but I feel like if you if you enjoy the little things in life, what you're going to do, you're going you're going to, you know, things like a dissertation aren't as daunting, aren't as daunting. Or it's like you just try to break it, break it down into smaller chunks, smaller parts to, to complete. But it seems Precisely. like a lot of like a lot of things that you do, even outside of your institution, everything, it, it makes you happy. But it's also making those you're actually still connecting and making a difference in so many other individuals lives as well. So it's almost like everything just keeps going full circle. Sure. Absolutely. It does. And uh, I'm, I'm just truly blessed for it. So. But Mark, again, this has been a great interview. Um, I feel like we have definitely a lot more to talk about, too. So we might have to get a part two on here at some point. But I appreciate you being on the podcast today. I appreciate it, man. Looking forward to it, Matt. And, and just appreciate what you do for the advising community uh, global, worldwide. Thanks so much, Mark. Excellent interview. Great having you on. And just like many, many times before, we have come to the end of another episode. If you don't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Advising Podcast. Take care, keep advising, and join back next time for episode 66.